boy. So the sermon title this morning is Listen to Jesus, and it is from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, I think, what the meaning of the text is. Jesus concluded his Sermon on the Mount with a story that called his listeners to choose between listening to Jesus and withstanding a storm or not listening to Jesus and being destroyed. Today, in light of the final judgment, we should listen to Jesus because he alone can save us from the coming storm. We're at the end of Jesus' sermon, and it made me think of the different ways that uh, some books and some movies end. Now, my wife, I'll tell you, Megan, loves for everything to end on a happy note. Uh, all the problems and loose ends tied up. Uh, she, she wants it to end with a period and just go, all right, that was good. I'm, I'm happy. We're, we're good to go. But if you know movies or you've read, there's a lot of stories that don't end that way. They don't end with a period. They end with a question mark. Think of, for instance, um, the second Star Wars movie. I'm talking the original. So The Empire Strikes Back. At the end of that movie, Luke Skywalker has lost to Darth Vader and he's been crippled and Han Solo is frozen in carbonite and so we're left with a question I mean will the rebellion survive or is it all over does the, does the dark side win or one of my favorites the Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Ring it ends with you thinking at least that Gandalf the wizard is dead that Boromir is dead that Frodo and uh, Samwise are facing Mordor alone and that Merry and Pippin have been kidnapped uh, by the evil orcs are going to die and so you kind of left wondering well Gee, I guess everybody I cared about is, is dying here. Is this going to get better? Or even a, a kid movie like The Incredibles, Disney's Pixar movie, ends with this family, the Parr family, in a parking lot facing a new enemy. You just thought that they'd fixed the city, but now the Underminer is here. And you're left wondering, are they going to be able to defeat the new enemy? Well, Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with a loud crash, and it leaves us with this pressing question. Now, his goal is not to entertain us. His goal is to bring us to the point of making a choice that has enormous consequences. This morning, I invite you to listen to Jesus as he finishes this sermon. And so if you have your Bibles, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. God's word says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who not only made sure we have this word by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you, you fulfill it. You are the center of what it means for us to choose wisely. And, and God, I would pray this morning that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to be here to help us lift up Jesus in our hearts and to receive from you rightly. God, the fact of the matter is, if we were left to our own, we're all going to make stupid choices. Uh, I've proven that time and again. And so I need you to make me wise. I need you to give me ears to hear, to give me a heart to receive, to give me hands to obey and to follow you in faith. And Jesus, I ask that you'd use this morning to move us in the direction we need to be moved. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this is a tale in some way of two houses. I want you to imagine that two friends uh, are going to build houses right next to each other so they buy adjacent waterfront property. 
and they both select contractors to begin building their dream home. They've been saving up for years, and this is going to be the home they retire in, and it's just going to be perfect. And the contractors both come and inspect the property that they have purchased and have a bit of bad news. You ever watch HGTV and the contractor always comes with bad news and always means it's going to cost more money. Well, these contractors have bad news. The bad news is the soil on the property where they want to build their home is not sufficient as a foundation material. So not only are they going to have to excavate some and bring in some better soil, but the contractors are recommending that they drive piles down to the bedrock in order to provide a stable foundation. When they ask their contractors, well, how much is this going to cost? It's going to be a considerable cost, so much so that they would have to reduce the square footage of their dream homes to be able to cover the cost. Well, both friends listen, and the first one decides, you know, um, I think it's worth it, and they do. They, they reduce the square footage of their dream home, and they have the piles driven down to the foundation of bedrock. The second says, you know, those um, explanations, I think we can get away with something less than the deep piles, and so they do a foundation, but not down to the bedrock. Both houses are completed, the friends move in, everything looks perfect until the storm comes. Eventually, a hurricane comes and it changes everything. It's a category three hurricane, but it has a slow rotation. So the wind speeds are around 120 to 130 miles an hour. But because of the slow rotation, the rain bands and the storm surge is enormous. It just drenches the land. And afterwards, it causes massive erosion. Now, the first homeowner who had the expensive foundation work done does sustain some damage to his home, but the foundation is secure, so the house generally is intact. There are only minor repairs needed after the, uh, after the storm. But the second friend, there's so much erosion that the back half of his house settles more than 12 inches. And so the cracks in the foundation propagate up through the walls. And when the insurance comes and assesses the property, they have to condemn the house. The only way to repair it at that point is to tear it down and to start all over again. That's essentially the story Jesus tells. Modernized and, and, and all, but that's, that's what he told. And so if you look at the text, what you see is there's incredible similarities between these two men. First, both of them hear the words of Jesus. Look at that in verse 24 and in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine is consistent between the wise man and the foolish man. Second, both are building houses, and both houses have foundations. And both men experience the trials of rain and storm and flood. But then everything else is different, right? Look at the differences. The wise man not only hears Jesus, but listens to Jesus and demonstrates that listening with an obedient faith. What I mean is he apparently trusts Jesus enough to do something about it. It's not just a words-only commitment. Whereas the foolish man heard, but apparently he didn't believe enough because he didn't act on what he heard. The wise man built his house on a stable foundation, the rock, whereas the foolish man built his house on an unstable foundation, the sand. And of course, the wise man's house withstood the great storm, whereas the foolish man's house collapsed. Well, now we're in a position to talk about what Jesus wants for us from this text. We first have to talk about what does Jesus mean by this house and foundation? What do they represent? And then what does he mean by this storm? And then finally, uh, what choice is he asking us to make? So first, what I call my house and my foundation. Look with me back in verses 24 and 26. They both begin with the word everyone. Everyone then who hears and everyone who hears. And that is the same way Jesus kind of began last week in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That was Matthew 7, verse 21. Last week, if you were here, Jesus warns us that there will come this great day where he will stand as judge, and each of us will appear to him individually as we have to give an account of our lives. Throughout the sermon, Jesus has been appealing to his audience to consider your life, to consider what you're building your life on, if you will, so that you know whether or not you're ready for that day. So I don't think, in other words, the house is just a literal house, and I don't think the foundation is just sand and rock. I think these are metaphors for your life. What are you building your life on? And, and in particular, the foundation is those core beliefs that dictate what you do. You might call them a worldview. The way that you make decisions and the way that you choose how to live. Now, here's the point. Everyone has a worldview. There's, there's no, nobody you can say, um, I don't really need a worldview. I just kind of do whatever comes natural. Well, that's a worldview. It's a worldview that says, I just do what comes natural. Uh, everyone has a worldview, and everybody's worldview is taking them somewhere. So last week, Jesus said these words, the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That was Matthew 7, verse 13. We talked about this like the big highway. And the reason that there are many on this highway is because it is the default location of mankind. By just being born this side of Genesis 3, you will start on this highway through these wide gates. That is, we have all sinned, we've all rebelled, we have all done what God forbids and refused to do what God commands. That, that, this takes away the idea that any of us is neutral that any of us can just check none of the above on core beliefs. Every one of us is born with a natural bent to think we know in some way better than God. And it may not feel like it, but I'm going to get to that in just a minute. So suppose you say, well, well Pastor, how do I know what my worldview is? How do, you, how do I know what my core beliefs are? Well, there are three crucial questions. First, you have to have an honest assessment of what are my beliefs. Second, you have to have a question of what are my beliefs based on. And third, you have to look at what was me, where are my beliefs taking me? So think about this for a minute. What are my core beliefs? Sometimes it's easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. Oh yeah, yeah I, I believe that. But it can be hard to know whether you actually believe it or you're just saying it. You know, I know as a kid, I had to come to a point where I knew, no, 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 this is what I believe, not just what my parents believe and what I've heard. No, 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 this is what I believe. And, and when it happened to me that, that I knew for sure it's what I believe, it was crucial choices in life. Here's one of them. For those of you who are married and are Christians, how did you decide who to marry? What went through that, that thought process? If you're a man, other than just, wow, she's really good looking. All right, I, I get it, guys. We, we, we got that down. But how, how did you decide that this was more than a girlfriend and this was somebody to marry? Well, if you're a Christian, at least part of it, I hope, was you took into account what God said about marriage about being a godly husband and a godly wife. I hope that somewhere along the lines, you had to ask not just, do I want to marry her, but does she want to marry me? Would I be good for her? Will I help her to draw closer to the Lord? Now, non-Christians want good marriages, those who get married. I, I, I've not met a non-Christian who's like, you know, I'm going to get married and I hope it's terrible. That's, that's what I want. I want a horrible marriage that ends awfully. Nobody, nobody wants that, but... The difference is a non-Christian probably does not see marriage as an act of worship and commitment to Almighty God. And so 
who I marry reveals what I believe. Do I believe there is a God and he is the one who gets to define marriage as one man and one woman committed for life? Or do I believe that marriage is kind of up to me to figure out, even redefine when I don't like that definition? Here's another big one that'll show you what your worldview is, and that is, how do you decide what to do with money? Money is a big revealer of our core beliefs. So let me show you how. If you're a Christian, you know that according to the Bible, God made everything. And that means God owns everything. And that means your money is actually God's money entrusted to you particularly to steward or to use in such a way that God is glorified. Now, we may differ on what we use the money for, but Christians agree that it belongs to God. Non-Christians want to use money wisely. Non-Christians, again, I've not met one, and I'm sure they, they exist, but who says, you know what I want to do is blow all the money possible and waste it and be terrible with money. Like, like that's just not a goal that I meet many non-Christians saying. But I haven't met a non-Christian who says, I believe that my money belongs to God. Money for a non-Christian is theirs. It's their hard-earned money to use as they deem best. So what you do with love and what you do with money will show you what you believe. Now, what are your beliefs based on? How did I come to that belief? For the follower of Jesus, I hope that the way you came to your beliefs is by what is written in this book. And if for some reason it's not, then it's time for you to check what you believe because this book, the Bible, is our inerrant source of information. It's God's revelation of himself to man. It's the only source of information that we can completely trust. I'm not saying we don't need uh, teachers and preachers and we don't need some guidance, but all that guidance has to pass the mustard of what's said in this book, including what I say. Please, Christians of Redemption Church, know your Bibles because at the end of the day, this wins over what Pastor Jared says or Pastor Chuck says or Pastor Wesley says or Pastor Jeff says. This is our go-by. Now, non-Christians have something that is their go-by. There are other faiths with other religious documents, other religious texts that guide what they believe, what they do. But even somebody who claims to have no faith, I promise there's a key um, teaching or a key philosopher or even a key movie or, or artist that drives what they do. So for some, it might be, um, you know, Karl Marx. For others, it might be Jimmy Fallon. But everybody has somebody that they're listening to, somebody that guides what they do. Where are my beliefs taking me. This might be the easiest way to figure out your worldview. You see, everybody does what they do because they think it will make them happy. Christians and non-Christians alike, you do what you deem to be best in the sense of you think it will make you happiest, giving the limitations of your circumstances. You might say, well, I think it would make me happiest if I could drink chocolate milkshakes all the time and it would give me a body like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, I get it. But given the limitations uh, of the fact that that is not possible, um, you still are going to do what you most want to do, what you believe will make you happiest. And here's the thing. As we grow, we start to learn that there are things we thought would make us happy and we realize that didn't quite pan out the way we expected. When I was a kid, a little kid once, um, I, I'd been really curious about that thing that glowed orange up at about eye level. And so one day I reached out and grabbed it, and it was the last time that I grabbed a hot stove because I realized that that wasn't a fun toy to grab. And so any kid that does that realizes it is a bad idea. It hurts to grab a hot stove. How about the young adult? Um, don't raise your hand on this if, if this was you, but do you remember the first time you heard something like this? Hey, 
get this credit card. It's same as cash financing, and we'll even give you a free t-shirt. And you thought, that just sounds excellent. This is like free money. This is perfect. Until you realized that you were paying 30% interest, and it was going to take years to pay off the debt. Even more than a burned hand and even more than a bad credit card debt, Jesus wants us to think, hey, where are my beliefs taking me? Where's this all going? If I am consistent on this road that I'm on, where am I going to end up? That's what he means by this metaphor of the house and foundation. Where is your life going? Well, now we're ready to talk about what I call the rains came tumbling down. Look with me back at Matthew chapter 7, verse 25. It said there, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And then look down at verse 27. It says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. You see, it's, it's the same until we get to the end, right? It's the same wind, the same rain, the same flood. And so we have to ask, what is Jesus talking about? And, and I think you get with me that this is a metaphor. That he's not talking about, hey, watch out. Some days it's raining, you're going to get wet. Like, like we get that this is a metaphor. But there's basically two options that you have to pick from about what this metaphor means. One is... This is a way of representing various storms in life. Those trials that come up throughout your life. Those difficult circumstances. So that's one thing that this could mean. The other is that this is talking about one particular storm. One storm that is bigger than all the others. That is the storm of our own death. Now, if you're like me and you've grown up in church, it's, it's almost um, become synonymous with describing difficult times as the storms of your life. Pulling from a passage like this. Do you have a foundation strong enough to endure things like a, a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor? Or, or losing your job unexpectedly? Or losing someone you love? Or just the kind of stress that is piled on so much that wants, it makes you want to give up. And I do think those are real trials. But I think we'll see that throughout the sermon, Jesus has been building to prepare us for the one great storm primarily. And then we'll have the strength and the perseverance needed to endure the smaller storms. In other words... If you're ready to die, you're ready to live. Let's think back through this sermon, and we're going to see how many times Jesus spoke about what happens next, what happens after we die. If you want to flip in your Bibles, go back to the beginning of Matthew 5, where right away at the beginning we read, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. It's the refrain of the Beatitudes. We also read in Matthew 5, 5, for they shall inherit the earth. These are promises to be filled after death and the new heavens and new earth, a time beyond this life. And then we learned, and Pastor Wesley did such a good job, that if you're going to combat the lure of the love of money, in Matthew 6, you need a superior joy to carry you through. Jesus said that we need heavenly treasures where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. We need a hope beyond this life so that not all of our eggs are in the proverbial basket of this life. We're free from the love of money. And last week, we noted that the wide way, the wide gate that leads to destruction versus the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life, these are things after this life. It's not just saying, hey, follow Jesus for a hundred years of hope. No, follow Jesus for a hundred thousand years of hope. And that we've already mentioned that when Jesus talks about that day, he's talking about judgment day when some will hear, depart from me. 
I stack all these on top of each other to help you see that the big storm, the great storm Jesus wants to prepare you for is your death or the day that Jesus returns because some of us will still be alive potentially when Jesus returns. But he wants you to be ready for dying. It's interesting in the book of Ezekiel, God similarly talked about dying with the metaphor of a big storm. This is Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 13. The prophet reveals, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. So the storm represents your death. The question is, does your worldview have what it takes to get you to the other side of the storm? Do you have a foundation strong enough to endure the storm of your death? Hey, here's some sobering questions. If your default worldview is to live for the things you can get for yourself, getting as much as you can, even by your hard work, you do not have a foundation that will endure the great storm. Your money and possessions cannot save you when you die. What I've just described is essentially the American dream. If your worldview is to trust in your basic goodness, your own moral character, then you do not have a foundation that will endure the great storm. Your good deeds, as good as they are, cannot save you when you die. If your worldview is to trust in either uh, multiple gods, other gods, or to borrow from multiple religions so you're kind of hedging your bets, as it were, then you do not have a foundation that will endure the great storm. Your gods cannot save you when you die. How do I know this? I'm going to this source that says, but there is only one name under heaven given amongst mankind by which we must be saved. I'm not being insensitive. I'm being caring to reveal what the Bible says, that it is in Jesus Christ alone that we find salvation from the storm of our death. So the house represents your life. The storm represents your death. Now we got to talk about what is it to be smart and what is it to be stupid. On the authority of God's word, first, the wise man's anchor. Jesus talks about this wise man who builds his house on the rock and it does not fall. And it's, it's a brilliant move of Jesus, right? He is trying to bring us to a point of choosing in such a way that he deems best. And he says, hey, hey, if you want to make the right choice, you want to make the smart choice, it, it's going to be like this wise man. And, and who of us doesn't want to be wise? Like you get to the end of the sermon and nobody's like, you know, I want to be the stupid guy. That's the part I want to play. No, no, everybody wants to be wise. Everybody wants to make the smart choice. And so Jesus lays it out. And he's been building throughout his sermon, telling us about these blessings that come to those who trust him, who follow him, and who will receive the blessings he promises. Here's just a recap for you. If you want to see this, again, walk with me back through, starting in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That was Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. All of those who are blessed. And then they expect a future blessing because he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth, for they shall be satisfied, for they shall receive mercy, for they shall see God, for they shall be called sons of God, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right from the get-go, we see that Jesus is like this merciful um, salesman, but a good salesman who's offering us something for free if we'll just trust that he's got something good to give us. He's offering us all of the best things if we'll just listen and trust him and follow him. And he continues. Remember how he talked about the great reward for those who endured persecution or the reward of being called great if we would keep the moral aspects of the law and teach others to do the same? 
Or what about the reward he talked about for those who practice their righteousness in secret to only be seen by the Father instead of practicing our righteousness like the hypocrites so that we get praise from men? Or remember when Jesus talked about um, and promised that if we would seek his kingdom more than worrying about our material possessions, that all those things would be added to us. And of course, he held out life to those who enter by the narrow gate. So we put it all together. And what's the smart choice? What does it mean to be the wise man who built his house on the rock? Well, it means simply this. The wise choice is to trust Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior completely and to demonstrate that trust with obedience. Jesus wants your allegiance, not just part of your allegiance, not just you like him, not just you'd give him a thumbs up on Facebook. Um, he wants your allegiance. He also wants your faith. I was having to talk about this with somebody uh, last week, and, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I believe Jesus died for me. Uh, I, I believe, I think, that, um, you know, he... he um, Sure, it was a good man, and I don't know, maybe he rose from the dead. And, and we had to talk about, uh, you know, faith is more than just kind of, I think that sounds good, probably, yeah, maybe, right? If, if there was a big chair up here, that kind of quote-unquote faith would be like me touching the chair. But Jesus wants me to put my full weight on him and to trust that he's got me. It's the kind of faith that says, look, Jesus, either you're who you say you are, or I'm going to come crashing down. Your whole weight on him. Jesus wants your commitment. This is perhaps the greatest hardship for American Christians because we like keeping our options open. We like saying, well, well you know, I go to church and, and I read my Bible, but I, but I also don't want to be, you know, known as like a Jesus freak or anything. I, I don't want to um, be, be too nuts about this stuff. I don't want to um, go all in with Jesus, but that's exactly what he calls us to do. He calls us to be all in, to trust him with everything, to commit to follow him. Why? Because he says, I've got all the blessings that matter. And they'll all be yours if you just trust me. That, according to Jesus, is the smart choice. And there'll come a day when you wake up after you die and you'll see him. He'll be right there. He'll be smiling. And I promise you'll know you made the right choice. Sadly, not everybody makes the right choice. The foolish man's collapse is the sad story of a stupid choice. The passage ends almost eerily, and if you've ever uh, read out of the New International Version, it ends with a great crash. It's as if the movie just goes, bam, fade to black. That's it. And then the credits start rolling. You're like, okay, I got it. I mean, this is eerie the way that Jesus ends his sermon. But he's been building up to this for week after week. Listen again to how many times he lovingly warned us to listen up and to not go a certain direction. Back in Matthew 5.13, he warned, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who never talks to people about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. A self-righteousness saves no one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Murder road that begins with anger and ends in physical violence will not get me where I want to go eternally. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
Adultery alley will not get you where you want to go eternally. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The praise of men will not get you where you want to go eternally. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, verse 15. When I punish others with unforgiveness, it may indicate that I've never experienced God's forgiveness. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. If I can only like what glitters on this earth, and I cannot see the greater joy of heaven, I'm truly blind. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. If I'm preaching or teaching a different Jesus or a different gospel from what is revealed here in Scripture, my end will be terrifying. You see, over and over again, Jesus is giving us these warnings. And when I was having a conversation, sharing the gospel with somebody this week, they reacted negatively to these statements. Well, well that's mean. Why, why would Jesus say that? And, and think about it. Let's suppose for a second that what Jesus is saying is true. Is it mean to tell you about them beforehand or does it mean to not tell you about him and you just walk blindly into this fate? You, you see, if it's true, the most loving thing Jesus could do would be to warn us. It's like putting up a bunch of big yellow signs. Hey, watch out. You're not going the way you think you're going. You, you got to wake up. Hey, hey, listen, I'm here to save you. I want to help you, but you got to listen. You got to make the right choice. It's not unloving, it's loving. He's trying to do everything he can. He left heaven and came and lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's doing everything he can to give us every opportunity not to go to these ends. But the bottom line is, ignoring Jesus will result in my eternal suffering. I've read the Gospel of Matthew several times in preparation for this series, and I encourage you to read it through several times. If you have a family, read it out loud with your kids. I, I would recommend maybe not the King James Version, nothing against it, but um, something a little easier to, to hear, something like the New International Version or the New Living Translation, but read it. It's amazing when you encounter Jesus by listening to his words. Uh, if you're not a reader, get a good audiobook. I, I like the Bible Gateway app. I also have used the Bible app. I also like the NIV Live app. That one is a pay for, but it's, it's dramatic. It's got sound effects and it's so cool. Anyway, I just like it. Uh, but, but absorb scripture and you're going to be amazed. But here's what I've heard many times over. Jesus talks about hell a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. I think because he doesn't want us to go there. Now, one verse. This is in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a very interesting passage we'll get to again, Lord willing, as we continue in the study of Matthew. But did you catch there that first hell was not made originally for people? Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This was a final punishment designed for Satan and the demons, those who originally rebelled against God. The reason that people end up there is because some persist in rebellion rather than receiving the gift of salvation. And so the only place for rebels is with the rebels. And they go where the place was prepared for the devil and his angels. When he says, depart from me in that verse, depart from me, you cursed. 
A big part of hell is not being with Jesus in the kingdom of light. C.S. Lewis has an incredible book called The Great Divorce in which he imagines hell like a rainy, awful day in London. I've been in London on a rainy, cold day. It's, it's kind of miserable. Um, but where all of the goodness in the world is gone, where everybody just treats each other as bad as they could. In fact, he, he can't even stand in line at a bus stop without there being fights. They're, they're in a big line waiting on a bus. They don't even know why they're waiting. And, and there's people complaining and shoving each other and hitting each other. And, and that's just a glimpse that C.S. Lewis gives of hell. Imagine a society in which all of the grace, all of the favor, it's, it's gone. And people are just as bad as they can be. And then in that passage in Matthew 25, 41, it says, into the eternal fire. God had to communicate to us that there will be suffering in hell forever. And so he chose an image of fire burning all the time. It's one of those images that I don't know that we need a whole lot of explanation for. I've been burned before. I grabbed that stove as a kid. I, I, I was told by my parents, because I was so little, that I almost lost use of my left hand. Um, I don't want to be burning forever. Why would Jesus say these things? I promise it's not because he's a monster. I promise he is a loving savior. And I promise he's being fully transparent. This is where your worldview is taking you if you don't come to me. That's his message. And he's giving us every opportunity to choose. So all that's left to do at the Sermon on the Mount then is choose. Gonna make the smart choice? Are you going to make the stupid choice? There is a card in the seat back in front of you. looks like this. I'm going to ask some questions, but invite you to take one of these. On the back, there's a big blank space. And I'd invite everybody here to use this time. And Pastor Wesley is going to come up here shortly. And, and here's the instructions. It says, how can we pray for you? If you want to write your name, I'd love to pray for you by name. If you're not comfortable, you don't have to put your name. I'll pray for you whether you put your name on it or not. But I want you to have an opportunity this morning to write out what God is doing in your heart. Now, a few promises for me. I'm not going to put these up on the website. Oh, here's what Darren wanted everybody to pray for. Here's where he's bearing his heart and soul. The world. I'm not going to do that to you, I promise. I'm going to read this. With your permission, I'll share it with the other pastors and we'll pray for you. On the other side, there are a few places you can check. I'm just going to highlight the few at the bottom. If you want somebody to talk to you about giving your life to Jesus Christ, there's a box that says, I want to be saved. You don't even have to know what that means at this point. But if you check that and you give me either a phone number or an email because I'm not clairvoyant, then I promise I'll reach out to you and, and we'll have a conversation. If you want to be baptized, uh, just check that box on the front of the card so that we can have a conversation. You may feel the Holy Spirit leading you to join this church as a member and be part of what God is doing at Redemption Church. Just check that box. If you're a member here and, and you would do this for us, there's a place at the top to update some of your information. Uh, doing that helps us to care for you. Sometimes I've, I've tried to call members of the church and we have a directory and I get the, this number is disconnected. Hey, I'm trying to love you. One way you can help me out is just give me a, a good working phone number, you know, not a 555 kind of phone number. I'll put that on there so that we can be sure to stay in contact. Pastor Wesley, come on up and I'm gonna ask you some questions as we go through this time. Here are the choices that Jesus is holding out to us and what I want you to write about on your card. 
Are you going to speak to others about Jesus and be salty? Or are you going to hide the gospel and essentially be useless? Maybe you're a Christian that needs to have someone pray for you that you'll take that courageous step and talk to somebody about Jesus. Well, we allow God to transform us so we have a new heart and practice a heart righteousness. Or will we continue to practice the kind of skin-deep righteousness that characterized the Pharisees? Maybe you need prayer that you'd, you'd take this walking with Jesus thing seriously. You know, you, you've been to church for years, and this was my story for a while, but you haven't really walked with him as the Lord of your life and allowed him to have it all. Maybe that's you. Write that out a little bit this morning so I can pray for you. Will we follow the Holy Spirit's conviction to get off of murder road or will we walk down that road from anger to attacking words and physical violence? Hey, in all candor, I need prayer for this. Sometimes I wear my emotions on my sleeve and, and it can come out in, in angry and bitter words and I need to get off this road. You can pray about that for me, for your pastor. And maybe you're like me and you realize that you struggle with some anger and you just like somebody to pray for you. Write that down so that I can be praying for you. Will we trust Jesus to get off of adultery alley and divorce drive? Or will we walk down those roads from lusting to adultery to divorce? Maybe you've got a dark struggle that you've been too scared to let anybody know about. There, there's some things that you're doing behind closed doors that you know are wrong, but you just don't know how to open up. Hey, use this as a safe place to just say, pray for me. I, I need help in the area of lust. And if you want, again, leave your phone number and I'd be glad to reach out to you and we'll have a conversation. There's good news in that the blood of Jesus can even cover those sins that you don't want anybody to know about. Write it down so we can have a conversation. Will we listen to Jesus's guidance to stay away from swearing circle? Or will we walk down that road giving ourselves license to, to lie and to deceive? This is, for many of us, common, right? Uh, lying has just become kind of the way that we deal with people we don't really want to deal with. Hey, if that's you and you want prayer and you want somebody to pray for you so that you can change, please let me know. Hey, I, I struggle with lying. Please pray for me. Will we be kingdom citizens who turn the other cheek or will we insist on our right to revenge if you've had somebody wrong you this week you know that impulse to get even <coughs> maybe you just write down pray for me as I deal with those at work and allow the pastors of this church to pray for you Will we be kingdom citizens who love our enemies or only those who love people just like us? Redemption Church, God has us in this part of Jacksonville, Florida for a reason. But it's going to take us being willing to love people who are not like us, which is so characteristic of our Savior, right? Last time I checked, none of us are God, and he loved us. And so if you've experienced that love, we can love somebody a little different from us. Maybe you know I need prayer to love my neighbor who's not like me. Write that down. Will we acknowledge how far short of being perfect we are like the Father? Or will we insist that we're pretty good people who deserve heaven? Jesus said, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but I can't make it past that verse and not need a Savior. Maybe you know you need Jesus to save you. Would you write that down so we can have a conversation? 
Will we give and pray and fast so that only God notices, content with the Father's praise? Or will we give and pray and fast so that everyone notices and publicly praises us? Christian, this is so easy to fall into. The Holy Spirit starts to move. You start to change. And then look at me. Look at how good I am. Hey, maybe you just need someone to pray for you that you would be content with the Father's praise. That you would do those things like praying and giving and yes, even fasting, but not so that everyone would notice. If that's you, just write that down. Will we forgive others when they sin against us because we've been forgiven far more by Jesus? Or will we refuse to grant forgiveness from a heart that's not experienced the Savior's grace? Maybe what you need to write down is somebody that you're having a problem with today. And you just need courage to forgive them. Pastor, pray for me. I need to forgive so-and-so. I'll pray for you. So much of this world would be changed if we would just offer honest forgiveness. If that's you, write it down. Will we treasure the things that last forever? Or will we cling to what rusts and fades away? Maybe you take stock of your life and the things that you have, you realize that they've got a tighter grip on your heart than you'd like. And you just need prayer. Pastor, help me to live for heaven and the treasures there. If that's you, write that down. Will we trust the Father to provide for us, seeking his kingdom first? Or will we live with worry and anxiety, thinking it's our job to provide for our every need? I get it. I've talked with some that's like, Pastor, you just, you don't know how hard it is to make ends meet. You, you just don't know the things that I, I need, and, and I don't know where they're going to come from. Hey, hey, I get it. And I can't solve all those problems. But we believe in a God who owns it all. And he loves us. And he says, just trust me. I love you. Maybe what you need is prayer for the courage to trust him most and to keep doing what he says is right. If that's you, write that down. Will we stay humble as we help others to see the sin in their lives or will we condemn others as too far gone for God's grace? We all have this calling to be peacemakers, but it can slip into condemning when it's, man, I can't believe you did that. I don't know. I don't know that there's any hope for you. Maybe you just need prayer that God would grow in you a heart of compassion again. That you wouldn't look at people and go, I'm so glad I'm not like them. But you look at someone and say, there's somebody made in the image of God. God, would you give me the courage to love them? Will we discern when the door is open for the gospel and when it is shut? Or will we insist on always having the last word with outsiders? Some of you may have the opposite problem. It's, it's your job to pound that gospel into everybody whether they want to hear it or not. And if that's you, just write it down and ask us to pray that God would give you some discernment. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts hearts. We're to be loving and patient witnesses. Will we keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking as we pray for the lost? Or will we just give up because it's taking too long for them to trust in Jesus? Maybe what you need to write down is the name of somebody or somebody who you've been praying for and the courage to keep praying for them because you've been praying for years and they've not yet come to Christ. Don't give up and allow us to come alongside you and pray. Will we treat others the way we want to be treated or will we refuse to love them because they don't deserve it? Christian, this is hard. You can't do this on your own. 
but in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the love of Jesus, you can treat others the way you want to be treated. Maybe you need to write down, help me love others. Will we enter by the narrow gate, walking the difficult hiking trail with Jesus? Or will we take the easy road through that wide gate that leads to destruction? Maybe you have debated for years whether or not to trust in Jesus. And here's an opportunity, just you and God, to say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? He can hear a prayer that you think. He can hear a prayer that you say. He can hear a prayer that you write. If you mean it, use this as a time to pray to Jesus and ask him to save you. Will we carefully inspect the lives and teaching of those we learn from the Christian life or will we follow wolves in sheep's clothing? Maybe you're the one who has read a lot, but you haven't really checked who you're reading and and what you're reading about. And you need prayer for discernment to make sure you're reading good Christian teachers and listening to good Christian podcasts rather than a wolf in sheep's clothing. If that's you, write it down. Will we do the will of God the Father, which starts with trusting Jesus alone, And that is evidenced by following him. Or will we think that doing religious things is good enough to get us into heaven? Hey, some of you are really good people. Some of you are better. I've I've talked with people who are far better than me at a lot of things. And sometimes you're the hardest to reach because your good deeds have become this stumbling block. You think, I'm so moral. I'm so much better than others. I don't need to be saved. Surely, Jesus would let somebody like me into heaven. Hey, on the one hand, I'm glad you're good. On the other hand, I'm not, because you've got to see you can't be good enough. The measure is not better than the neighbor. The measure is perfection. And if you're not there, maybe what you need to write down is, God, Help me to see that I need forgiveness. That no matter how many times I show up to church, no matter how much money I put in the offering plate, no matter how times I pray, it's just, it's never going to be enough. I need to rest in the fact that Jesus did it for me. There was a wise man who built his whole life on faith in Jesus Christ alone. He wasn't perfect, but he followed the Lord Jesus And there came a day when he died and he woke up to his Savior saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter the joy of your master's rest. There was a foolish man who heard the gospel many times. He got drugged to church as it were. And he thought that because he went to church and had heard the gospel and done some kind things that he'd be okay. But when he died, he met Jesus. And Jesus said to him these terrifying words, depart from me, I don't know you. And he realized what a fool he'd been. I'm gonna close this time in prayer. Please don't leave here without writing something on the card. Please let me pray for you in some way. Let the pastor of this church come alongside you and pray for you individually in some way. There are going to be some baskets in the back when you're leaving, and that's a way you can drop them in. Again, this is not going to be advertised on some blog or nothing. It's going to be between you and the Lord and a few pastors that really care about you. You may be right now even wondering, am I going to write my phone number or not? Please do. Please give me a chance to to call you and have a conversation. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you love us enough to give us the truth the way it is and give it to us with grace. I mean, if this was all bad news, if there was no way any of us could be saved, then I'd say, just don't tell us. Let us go through life happily ignorant. And then one day we'll die and it will be terrible. But, but there's hope in you. You came 
And you love us and you, you lived that perfect life we couldn't. You died for us on the cross and you rose from the grave and you told us about it. And, and you're, you're there saying, come to me, trust me, follow me. I pray, Jesus, that there's anybody here who needs that salvation, that they would indeed ask you for it. Help them know that they don't need me to save them. They need you. Help them to ask for it right now, sincerely, and I pray that you'd give it to them. God, I pray for Redemption Church, for each of us individually and for us as a church. Would you make us a loving family, please? And use these words straight from you to shape us. Make us the kind of church that treats one another the way we want to be treated. I love you, Lord. I'm really, really grateful for you. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, church family, um, I have a few announcements.